1: Bring in show music, please.
2: This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, a voting member of the Federal Reserve, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee with what we're missing in the inflation conversation.
1: The one thing that I think we're spending too much time looking at is wage growth as an indicator of prices.
2: And Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali, the drive to survive and the long road to streaming.
3: The biggest thing that happened was for us to convince our world that Netflix was the right way to go. We were quite traditional a couple of years ago.
2: Plus a holdup on the runway for Boeing and French protesters at the gates of LVMH.
4: Protesters that broke into the company's headquarters yesterday uh, were chanting there is money in the pockets of billionaires.
2: It's Friday, April 14th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now.
4: Stand
5: under by in three, two, one, cue Andrew.
4: Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross
6: along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. We've got Austin Goldsby, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. Chicago Fed President,
7: are you gonna talk to him. Are you going to Dane? To call him mr president i'm calling
6: him mr president every time i address him because he specifically said i need to refer to him as as mr president he had already now he's a smart guy and i don't think he knew about the inflation numbers he had already said you know let's just have a light touch he said that earlier this week with harker right i think you know if, they, if they're going to five and they're still at 73 percent of fed funds to go to five and the in the two years that what three nine but
7: look at that market. the market reaction is just have a truck through that the Fed is going to be out of the way and so therefore we're going to go higher so how does the Fed feel about that how does mr president feel about that that when the Fed finally says you know what it going to might pause. not
6: go higher because the reason that they're it not going not, to hike and is because we're going into I a agree. recession
7: but for now that's right. what we have
6: I still think the market goes higher even if we do hit a mild recession but this economy, Do you know how many times in the past, when you think a recession's coming, and it comes when you least expect it? I mean, this is the most widely telegraphed recession ever. So, maybe there isn't one. But maybe we wouldn't that be great if inflation went down and there wasn't a recession? Then we're off to the races. Although gold
4: is almost at an all-time high. Are we off to the races, or are we on some kind of Larry Summers-style stagflation? Right, right, exactly. That's the. It, it may very well be. You you could bypass the recession and just be in a malaise but the for is, a really long time. Yeah, but
6: it's a malaise not, may be worse than a recession. No, but, but a recession without inflation is a standard thing that we go through. That's not what go gold through. is telling you, though. I, th- ta- I think it gold is. is no, I don't that think there, it is. That I think inflation could be. Embedded. I think it's telling you the spigots are, are reopening when the Fed stops. That's all. That that's re- same reason Bitcoin is at thirty-one thousand almost. Uh, this morning, but that's, that's almost an all time high for gold. But I, I was thinking the same thing. Oh, that's saying persistent inflation. It seems to move when inflation comes down, right? That's when Bitcoin started moving. also the banking crisis, but it, it, when, when it comes down so that the Fed is obviously going to be back on, you know, and what it does, what it's done for the past 10 years, which is print, print, print. <laughs> Dow component. The only reason the Dow's down, uh, this morning is because of Boeing. Uh, let's take a look at, uh, at where the stock is. You can see uh, this morning it's down almost 5%, almost 10 points. Phil LeBeau uh, has the story behind it. And, I, you know, you're not a guy to go into implications, Phil,
5: but damn. You've been busy talking about Boeing's problems for the last two years. Sure. And and just when you thought the 737 MAX, the production would be increasing later this year, that's the expectation that is out there. When you talk with suppliers, they say that Boeing's preparing to do that later this year, though Boeing has not officially said they're increasing 737 MAX production. But production will be in focus. We should point out they have not shifted or paused or slowed down production yet, though that clearly is going to be the uh, the question from Wall Street after this latest uh, revelation from the company that it will be slowing or pausing, I should say, deliveries of some 737 maxes, not all, but some of them. The, the issue is that there are two fittings from their supplier at Spirit Aerosystems, they were incorrectly installed. This is where the in the rear of the fuselage, the aft fuselage, where it connects with the uh, vertical fin, they were incorrectly installed. Now, this is not a safety of flight issue. I can't stress this enough. The maxes that have already been built that are in service, they're safe. The FAA says they can continue flying. Ultimately, they will be inspected to see if there needs to be uh, a corrective uh, fix put in place uh, for those uh, airplanes as well. Boeing says the issue will likely affect a significant number of undelivered 737 MAX airplanes, both in production and in storage. Guys, this hits right to the bottom line, because when you slow down deliveries, you slow down the cash flow. In the fourth quarter, Boeing had approximately 250 737 maxes in storage, essentially in inventory. Remember, they had a big inventory. They continued production even while the plane was grounded. That they have been working down, but they have about 250 or did at the end of the fourth quarter. So that's likely what they have right around now. The production is currently at 31 737 maxes per month. And again, the expectation on Wall Street has been look, that's going to go up later this year. But will that happen now that they have said, look, we're going to pause deliveries, we're going to do some inspections? Not all MAXs, by the way, will be needing to have some type of corrective fix. The, the Dash 9 models, uh, those are still being delivered, and there are suppliers who have these uh, fittings that, that were correctly installed for some aircraft. So Boeing has to go through now all of these. By the way, take a look at Spirit Aero Systems. It's down or was down pre-market more than 10%, uh, largely because people are saying, okay, how much corrective ish, uh, situ- uh, uh, corrections need to be made in terms of production and how much will this slow down uh, what Spirit is delivering in terms of 737 Maxes and the fuselages that they deliver to Boeing. Guys, I can't stress this enough. This is the cash cow. The The MAX is where they get, you know, the cash flow for this company, a, a large percentage of it, not all of it, but a large percentage of it, about $10 million uh, per uh, aircraft that is delivered. And so if you have to slow down those deliveries, you really start to see a, a hit to the bottom line. Already, Sheila Caillou, um at uh, Jeffries out with a note saying she's going to bring down her estimate in terms of deliveries. Expect to see that from all of the analysts on Wall Street.
6: Boeing, those jets are like one of the Seven wonders of the modern world, and I I think about how many installations are involved. Of, I mean, just across the board, thousands of installations of whatever goes into the making of one of these modern jetliners. So I guess it's not, you know, if things are going to happen, you try to do six sigma, the old GE thing, have no mistakes in like seven million. Processes, but that, that's, a, that's right. a perfect world. That that doesn't happen. How does it affect the airline, though? Uh, how does it affect the the plane itself, Phil? If it's not a safety
5: issue. Well, there, there are eight of these fittings that go into the aft fuselage where the vertical fin come together, and only two are in question. So right. they've talked with the FAA. They have reviewed this, uh, both Boeing Spirit as well as working with the FAA. Uh, they're comfortable that the aircraft that are in service. Are safe. Right. That there's but not I'd still an issue fly there. On the plane uh, and if, the there w- were- if there was an issue, Joe, if yeah. Joe, if there was an issue, the FAA and Boeing would not hesitate to say I hear stop you. flying. I hear you. Uh, the I fact that it, they came out and said there's a no, if no issue. If I had
6: my druthers, give me the one with the correct installation. Phil, it.
7: Phil, the, the the certification that it's still safe to fly, that's based on just to be clear, information that Boeing presented the FAA. Correct. The FAA has not done an independent sort of look at this to ascertain whether or not it's safe to fly.
5: Well, that's kind of a, a gray area there, Melissa. What do you mean by an independent one? I mean, not theoretically, the Boeing FAA data. is independent. Well, how do you do that, Melissa? I mean, th- th- that's the way this, this relationship works between yeah. the regulator and the company. I don't. You yeah, know, I you mean, know now, we're we're now saying, you're getting so that into the gray area where you're... Right, I understand you, what you guys are saying here. You remember the FAA that software, remember that software
6: issue that, that Boeing thought that was safe
5: uh, for, for Right. Joe, I understand what you're saying, and I'm not trying to sit here and defend the FAA and Boeing. But what I'm saying is they can only go on the information that they have. They're comfortable. And look, Boeing got dragged through, rightfully so, because of the the issues with the MAX and um, all of the problems that they had following the two crashes. Rightfully so, it was dragged through the mud and paid a price for those two crashes. Since then, they've been working closely with the FAA. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to buy into this but, while it's, Boeing tells them it's safe. It's but, not as simple as that. They work together. About, they look at the data. How about Dave
6: Calhoun, um, Phil, at this point? There, were some, you know, there was a little bit of grousing in, in recent quarters of, about all the things that have happened. Uh, would, would a CEO, I, I guess, I mean, everything rests on his desk eventually. But, I, I mean, how closely could he well, have Well, this is monitored? a supplier. Joe, this is a supplier. Know. I got it. This is a supplier. It, but, it, but it's hurting, But it's going to hurt, you know, it's Boeing stock that's down. So everything comes under. Well, the I, understand
5: that. Of- and, and I understand that. And I I understand what you're saying. And will Dave Calhoun likely? Well, look, he will address this. He has to. They have their earnings coming out in a couple of weeks. We're expecting to talk with him that day. He will have to address this. They are likely going to have to say our delivery forecast is going to be impacted in some fashion. How much? Who knows if they're going to be able to put a number on it at that point. They're going to start doing these inspections. Look, they've got to put together an inspection protocol that has to be signed off on by the FAA. The FAA is not just going to sit there and say, well, go ahead and check it. They are going to be working with the FAA. So they have to go through this process. If this is not an overnight check all of these planes. They have to put this process moving forward where they the FAA can say, okay, we're comfortable with what you're doing. You remember we had you had the
6: Airbus guy on with us, Phil, he he almost yeah. couldn't disguise he almost couldn't disguise his sort of epikaracy. That's the American word for for Schadenfreude. But he almost couldn't, and he says, "Yeah, this has helped us. This has put put us into the lead in terms of the perception sure. on, on on building airliners."
5: And this is just absolutely. another absolutely, absolutely. An, add another one to,
6: to the list. Absolutely,
5: it's a duopoly, uh, and when the and I other don't like companies it, prime I love, product, you know, Boeing
6: is a gr- one of the great no, American look, Joe, companies of all time, and I love, you know, it, you're proud. It's the manufacturing gem of the the U.S. economy. No
5: argument. No, look, it's a Dow component. It's a critically important company uh, to the, uh, the U.S. economy. And I think everybody would like to see Boeing succeed, just as they want to see all companies succeed. So when you see a process like this or a situation like this develop, nobody's crazy about it. But, you know, it, it, right. we can't stress this enough. They've been through this. They're going to have to go through it again. Now the question becomes, how much does it hit the bottom line? Right.
6: All right. Fantastic. Thank you, Phil. Bernard Arnault, the world's richest person,
4: widening the gap with Elon Musk, the Frenchman behind LVMH, seeing his fortune jump by $12 billion just yesterday to almost $210 billion. That's according to Bloomberg. That's thanks to a 5.7% rise in LVMH's shares in Paris that follows earnings. Elon Musk worth about $180 billion. So, you know, nothing to sneeze as that. Separately, protesters, though, storming the headquarters of LVMH in Paris yesterday. Uh, A crowd of men waving flares and banners, forcing their way through the entrance of the building where Arnaud and other executives have offices. Demonstrations have raged across France for months now in opposition to President Macron's pension overhaul. Bernard Arnaud has been a lightning rod for much of it, with protesters carrying mock-wanted posters featuring his face Protesters that broke into the company's headquarters yesterday uh, were chanting, "There is money in the pockets of billionaires." You know, I don't know if you saw a similar thing happen now, probably almost a year ago at BlackRock in the BlackRock offices in of Paris. So this has become um, uh, a real issue there. And you know, you talk about well, you could talk about Europe on one end, because also talk about inequality and sort of how it all plays out. And this is one manifestation of it.
6: You have a choice. And have a meritocracy or something totally egalitarian, and we've tried both.
2: Cheese will
5: be next.
2: Next on Squawk Pod, the Fed's inflation battle and the data that really matters with voting member Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee.
1: There's no way you can look at current conditions around the world and in the U.S. and not think that some mild recession is definitely on the table as, as a possibility.
2: We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod, where Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross-Sorkin, and Melissa Lee sat down with our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, and a special guest, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee. Here's Steve kicking off that conversation. You
8: recently wrote a uh, uh, or gave a speech the other day, Austin, that talks about the Fed not raising too aggressively. And I'm trying to understand more about what you meant about that. Does that mean not doing additional rate hikes from here? Um, or does that mean not doing a lot more from here? Could you maybe put some uh, uh, detail around that comment?
1: Yeah, Steve, look, the, the detail around the comment is at a moment where you got financial stress and you're getting financial tightening from banks trying to conserve capital or, or trying to strengthen the, their their own side of the ledger, that does the work that normally you're doing in monetary policy. So Fed's got a job to maximize employment and stabilize prices, and Fed's going to do that job. If the credit conditions are doing that job for it, you, you want to be mindful of it and, and not be too aggressive. We still got several weeks before the FOMC meeting, so I, I don't want to specify to the basis point exactly what wh- what is that going to mean for uh, f- for what um, I would be for at, at the FOMC meeting, because I still want to see the data. Um, but l- let's just be mindful that we've raised a lot. It takes time for that to work its way through the system. And you, m- with this retail sales number, you may be seeing a, l- a little bit of that lag. And if you add financial stress on top of that, let's not be too aggressive.
8: Give me your impression, uh- Austin, of the, uh,
1: uh, I guess it should be President Goolsby now,
6: right? No, it's uh, Mr. President. That's Mr. exactly President. Mr. right. Mr. President. And there for Joe, is.
1: that's Air Doctor President Plenty Potentiary.
6: made All it right. very clear that I need a lot of respect <laughs> now. A lot of respect he did. now. He we, are, we are going to give it. Gonna treat Austin. We're going to treat President Goolsby
1: with respect. We're going to get to it in a second, the money you still owe me.
8: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hold on. I don't What's think you a, can accept that anymore. I was I trying to keep this this interview from going off the rails quite so quickly, but let's just keep it focused for a second, President Goolsby. Um, Mr. President. Mr. President, um, uh, give me your impression of the two inflation reports this week, and your outlook for inflation over the next
1: several months. <laughs> Look, I I think inflation is coming down. We've got, we've still got this. Is it a cloud? It's probably not a cloud anymore, but this this issue of how much is coming from demand and how much from supply. You've seen the supply chain constraints easing across a lot of sectors. So that's been helping bring inflation down, but you've still got clear stickiness on some parts of the prices. I think when you see the producer prices coming in as big negative numbers and you see these negatives on retail sales, You don't want to overreact to short run news, but it it feels like that's moving in the right direction. The one thing I will highlight, what, what, what I'm looking at quite clearly for coming into the next FOMC meeting is what's happening on credit. I'm talking a lot of bankers, businesses, community development organizations, how tight is credit and how much of a credit crunch is there? The one thing that I think we're spending too much time looking at is wage growth as an indicator of prices. There's research out uh, by Chicago Fed researchers reflecting a longer tradition of research that shows wages do not serve as a leading indicator for price inflation. They're a lagging indicator. So when people are looking at what's happening to wages now, that's more reflective of what happened to prices six months ago. I think we want to keep our eye on the price series, not on the wage series.
8: Austin, you, you said in your uh, you quoted analysts in your speech, saying that the tightening of credit conditions could be worth 25 to 75 basis points of Fed tightening. Um, do you embrace that, or you is that a sort of an arm's length
1: no, thing? No, I or did. I, I didn't embrace it even in that. I said, we don't know what we need to study is how big is that in, in a Fed funds equivalent and that the, the ranges kind of are all over the place. The median range, I'd call it, from the private analysts is 25 to 75. There are some people, as you know, they would be saying 150 and 200. That, that doesn't seem realistic to me, but it's something. And so if you see credit tightening, you know that that does the job of monetary policy. And this moment, uh, so, sometimes when when you're trying to strengthen the financial system and you're looking at, at either regulatory forcing or the banks themselves trying to strengthen their financial positions in stress, a lot of times that's happening when the economy's in the dumps. Uh, and so in a way, your financial stability goals and your monetary policy goals end up fighting each other. But this is not that moment. This is a moment where everything we do to strengthen the financial system, to prevent that from, from snowballing, is actually doing the job of monetary policy. So I, I don't think that they're in conflict at this time. So, so
6: Mr. President, the, the old expression, perfect becoming the enemy of the good. I mean, I like 2% inflation. That seems like a good number. All right, but really? there got to be 2%. I mean, it just seems like 3 might be okay long, long term, number one. I, I, wow, I don't know. Joe, he, has he.
1: Go ahead. While I've been gone, have you been. Has he changed his breakfast regimen? Now, now Joe is on your side raising on this,
6: the. I've been on your side the entire time on, on this. <laughs> and I, my next question to you if it wasn't Mr. President, but if you were Mr. Chairman, Austin Goldsby, when you talk everybody else into not doing another 25, I don't think
1: you want to do another 25. Okay, for, for, first of all, let's back up. What, did you plot? You owed me money. Your poor forecasting skills lost you money. You oh, owed me two, dinner. It was 2-9. And and hey, now, hey, I've wait. taken... No, now, this is, I, I tried to it go was to a you dinner, You're and, like, oh, and Furman, I'm going on vacation, so Furman I don't have said, to take you Jason out. Jason Furman
6: said, uh, uh, using the, the more conventional method, it was above 3%. You squeaked no, by up, by a tenth of a point, the, and you never come back here to let me pay gentlemen, you. Gentlemen, I gentlemen, gentlemen, can we? I
1: did come back, and you <laughs> went we on vacation just to not pay to me, re- And oh, now can't I can't answer. even receive it. All waited me out, right. so now take a dinner from you.
6: And there's been no inflation at Taco Bell, I so I have a different question for Austin. <laughs> Let's give it up and here. And it's a
4: question I've I've asked a number of folks who are on the Fed, and now that you are on the Fed, he didn't Fed, answer I whether the question, he would. Pause. Which is, what do you think a politically palatable unemployment rate could or should look like in the United States? Look, I'm out of the politics business, Andrew. I no, don't I, know what I know a politically that, but, but palatable. No. To the extent, but to the extent you're that if you're going to maximize the Fed and you're employment, about, or forget about politically palatable, what is a economically palatable what is a palatable unemployment like what is maximum employment is that what you're asking I, I you know that maybe that is what i'm asking but what do you think makes sense i think it is
1: For, Look, you know, given ma- the inflation piece employment. you're talking about yeah it, it it varies depending on what's happening on the supply side so in the pandemic inflation soars when the unemployment rate is six percent and above so at, at that moment, it's different than now, it's different than in 2019, where we got unemployment down to three and a half percent, but there there was no inflation. So I, I don't think you can actually answer what's maximum employment until you m- merge it in with what's happening with prices. Did
6: you say if you were Powell, you wouldn't raise? Austin, did, did you answer that? <laughs> I
1: didn't, say, that's what you said. And no, that, I know, look, but you didn't I, answer. You, I learned long it. ago, Joe, to never let you put words in my mouth. And would you, Ray, if you well. were in charge, Would you try to talk everybody else into pausing if you could look, right now? I would, Joe, I'm a old school data dog. And what I would do is spend the next three weeks getting out and figuring out how much credit tightening is coming from the financial Austin, stress. Speaking of a data we got to stop Ch- inflation. We got to stop inflation. How much stock do you put
8: in the staff of the Federal Reserve Board, the seven thousand economists there, and their models which they run twenty thousand times, saying that the baseline forecast now is a mild recession because of potential bank tightening.
1: I, I put some stock in that. I put more stock in our Chicago Fed researchers. We got the best researchers of all. But there's no way you can look at current conditions around the world and in the US and not think that some mild recession is definitely on the table as as a possibility. I mean, the, the data show that, and we've raised rates almost 500 basis points in a year. That's historically an indicator of slowing GDP growth. When you get numbers like retail sales and others that are declining, you look at construction, I think we've got to think about what's the state of growth in the country. Fortunately, the labor market continues to be very strong. So how does your reaction function
8: change, Austin? How does the reaction function change? How do you respond to a recession? There are people who have argued to me that your average Fed official actually has a recession built in in everything but GDP by pointing out that you don't get a one percentage point increase the unemployment rate outside
1: of a recession. Does
8: a recession means you stop hiking? Does it mean you cut?
3: Well,
1: I mean, let's not start chasing our tail here. It depends. Is, is this mild recession, if they have it, is that being caused by the raising of interest rates, or is that a recession that's happening because of supply conditions or things that are happening outside?
7: Austin, I have a question because whenever the markets get a whiff of the notion that the Fed may pause, that the Fed may actually consider a pivot, asset prices go higher. So to the extent that you care about or the Fed, does the Fed care about that, that the markets take it as a good sign and therefore stock prices will rally? Because what we saw yesterday was very interesting. We saw a risk on rally. So we saw, for instance, the ARK Innovation ETF rise, rally on the back of this notion that maybe the Fed's gonna pivot. That sort of works against what the Fed's trying to do. It's an interesting
1: point. I think that's an interesting point. I've been publicly saying from the time I took the job and, and before on this program over the years, I'm not a fan of the Fed tying, let's call it its mandate or the doing of its job to how does the market reacting. Like I say, Congress gave Fed a job, which is maximize employment, stabilize prices. It doesn't say anything in there about make sure that the markets stay happy or make sure nobody loses any money. Uh, and so I, I'm not a fan of paying close attention to to what the market response is going to be.
8: It's a little weird because you do your job through the market, right? And And-, uh, and- and, no, well, hang on. Let me just let me just call up a chart here, Austin. Well, I mean, you guys said you were going to pivot into raising rates in November of 21 and rates went up and that was doing your job for you. And right now, if you look at the outlook for rates, Austin, uh, they don't believe you. They think you're going to cut and cut pretty deeply by the end of this year. Um and so in a sense the market is not doing its job for you. So may, maybe you shouldn't be pandering to markets, but certainly there's some what's
6: the right word, symbiosis that's necessary here that you're not getting. Austin in the past the, the Fed has tried to uh, the wealth has tried to use the wealth effect to, to bolster balance sheets and make things better and have stock market go up. In, in in seriously scary times it stated zero to bolster the wealth effect to help. So that was, that was a,
1: that's why we had a Fed put for so long. you really don't think we've ever done that to try to make well, things better? I'm not, I'm not gonna get in an in a argument about history. I'm gonna just say at this moment, when I say we need to look at what the market is doing for us in monetary policy, I'm talking about credit conditions on the ground for regular, in the real economy, regular businesses. If the stock market reacts, so be it. But that's not what I think that the Fed's primary instrument should be right now. It should not be using the wealth effect of stock market wealth to try to steer the economy. I think right now, this credit condition is the- Plus the the Fed
6: uses the pandemic as an excuse for staying staying at zero. Why can't I use that as an excuse for not paying off? You weren't back here, there was a pandemic. So how are we supposed to go to dinner or lunch when there was a pandemic? Right? Because there was a pandemic. <laughs> Did you forget you there was a pandemic? All I you, know, you I showed up. You out,
1: forgot there you went was on a pandemic, and you waited me out, Joe. You waited me I'm, out, I'm and gonna, now I'm, gonna, I'm not allowed step in I'm going to pull the tapes. I'm going to okay, pull the tapes. I'm not to go Mr. to President. dinner with you. I'm going right, to pull the tapes. I'm going to settle this
8: once and for all. I don't have the kind of time to deal with this anymore. Like Austin, we got a lot of things to ask you about, so I got to settle this. I want Joe to be happy. I want you to be happy. I just want to settle this thing. Thank you for joining us, President Goolsby, Austin, whatever it is. Uh, we'll see you again soon.
2: <laughs> Up next on SquawkPod, the drive to survive with Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali, his sustainability goals for the league, and the sky-high costs of the sport for tickets and for the Las Vegas Grand Prix. What's it going to cost you to build this office?
3: Well, I want to say, on, on the other hand, how much you're going to earn, because that's the most important thing. Uh, but uh, it would cost a lot because the cost of all park for us I would say a, a, a lot of millions from
0: a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive
2: Welcome back to Squawk Pod, where we're taking you from Times Square in New York to Kiowa Island in South Carolina. Earlier this week, Andrew Ross Sorkin sat down at the Leadership Summit there with Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali. Here is that conversation. How do you
4: describe this remarkable success that's happening here with F1 in the United States? I mean, what do you think has actually happened?
3: That's a good question. I think. Uh The main thing that happened is uh, F1 understood the American way. And uh, up to a couple of years ago, we were quite uh, arrogant, pretending that the Americans were uh, understanding F1 without being there, without being here, without being uh, able to explain what is Formula One. And I think that uh, that was the switching moment. Okay, let's make sure that we do our job. Making our job means... But a
4: tr- what was that? What was that? I mean, there was Netflix, obviously, which helped Netflix. enormously, but, what, but there was something else to it.
3: Well, I think that uh, Netflix for sure played uh, an important uh, role in this part. But we opened up a social media platform. We tried to engage with our fans. We tried to speak with the different narratives about Formula One, and we were talking about Formula One every day. Before we were coming here, three days for the weekend and uh, living in the U.S. saying, okay, I don't know why these Americans do not understand F1. And now we have changed completely, the mentality, and, uh, and I think that is terrific what we see today. I mean, I just do believe that we are just scratching the surface of the interest of the American market.
4: And it's a different demographic that, that, that watched car racing in America than before. Meaning, yeah. the crowd that was watching Daytona is not the same crowd watching F1.
3: No, it's much younger, it's more diversified. We have a lot of uh, women following that. And I think that the reason is, uh, of course, being connected with with our drivers, being connected with our world, uh, and tried not to talk about only details of racing and uh, and talking about behind the scene, behind the drama that is uh, uh, fascinating in one. I think that was the activated moment where we were able to switch on the, the American fans. What were you looking at it,
4: when you were thinking about how to transform this business in the US? What were the, uh, was it other sports? Was it other businesses? Was it other entertainment that you looked at to try to figure out how to make that switch?
3: I think for sure uh, it was important to understand uh, the other American league, American sport, what was the key of success. There is a very peculiar uh, way of uh, the American sport business to be in in this incredible country. And I think that is uh, something uh, that you cannot find uh, other places. You know, the way that you live the sport, you live the entertainment part of it, You leave the the, the engagement part of it that's been very, very important for us. And I'm always saying that you need to be in a record mode. You need to listen, you need to watch, you need to understand, you need to capture something because everything can be very important to, to grow and that's what we did. Okay, so the Netflix piece of it,
4: that feels like one of the major transformations getting behind the scenes to create that drama. Is there another sort of next step in that evolution?
3: Well, I think that uh, we don't have to stop. Netflix was very important, no doubt. They did an incredible job. And I think that uh, uh, the biggest thing that happened was for us to convince our world that Netflix was the right way to go. We were quite traditional a couple right. of years ago.
4: Well, and, well, 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 take us inside the room. What was the decision on Netflix?
3: Well, on uh, that, as always, there are uh, organization, but there are people behind that. And right. at that time, as you know, we are owned by Liberty Media. Uh, Chase Carey was the CEO, my predecessor, yes. and there was a Sean Bratches who was the head of uh, marketing and commercial side of it, who wanted to do it. And it was uh, very, very good at doing that. Was because... there
4: any pushback internally at
3: the Oh time? yeah, 100%. The first, the first season, we had Ferrari, Mercedes that we didn't attend that because they said, oh, come on, that's not really what we want to do. And now everyone is on, on the show and everyone is understanding the power of talking about our sport in a different way. You are making some
4: efforts to transform part of the sport itself, and there's some controversy around that, including things around practice and other things. What, what are you trying to do, and how is it gonna change the game?
3: Well, I, I don't think it's controversy. I think it's trying to understand, anticipating the near of the future. Uh, I'm in this sport since 30 years, and, uh, and, I, I, and I've tried to watch with a different kind of angle. You know what is happening. Uh, what I said is that uh, if you see people coming to the to our event, you know we have uh, uh, big crowds now. Right. We have 11 uh, last year, more than 11 races, more than 350,000 people coming. And these these people are paying, on average, something like seven thousand dollars to be there. They pay a lot of money, and and that's the reason why we need to be very respectful. Uh, we have to give them a unique experience. And that's why I do believe that being on, on a racing weekend with a lot of free time for the drivers and the team to free practice doesn't achieve uh, or doesn't give them what they should. So receive. what do you want that time to be? I think that uh, in my view, you know, apart from the first uh, session on Friday morning all the other sessions while we are on the track, we need to fight for something.
4: Vegas, Vegas, baby, what's gonna happen?
3: Well, Vegas is, uh, is a great responsibility. Because uh, I remember when I've been there two years ago just to try to hammer down the, the, the weekend there. It has been not an easy, an easy task because at the beginning not everyone understood what Formula One was. Now all the community is embracing this project. We have uh, a lot of things to, to do. We have a great group of people there. Uh, and run by René Wilm, who is the CEO of the, of the promoter. How much is it
4: going to cost you to build this whole thing?
3: Well, I want to see on, on the other hand, how much we are going to earn, because that's the most important thing. Uh, but uh, it will cost a lot, because the cost of Ballpark all... Ballpark for us. I would say a, a, a lot of millions. A lot of millions? Yeah.
4: Ford and Audi are coming on board, and this also is coming at a time where you're building some new sustainability goals. Yeah. How important is that? How important is bringing them back into the fold?
3: I think it's important, but the reason why they are there is because I believe that we were very serious in our sustainability path of growth. I mean, uh, we're gonna be carbon neutral within 2030. We're gonna use a sustainable fuel starting from 2026, actually in the Formula 2 and Formula 3 racing we have already. So that's I think is the key of our success in that respect. Are you
4: pursuing the sustainability goals because of pressure in Europe, because of pressure from politicians, because you think the consumer, the fans want that?
3: I think that uh, I will start with the last one because I believe in terms of sensibility, the society has changed. And I think that we are doing uh, in our own way. We were in this moment where the automotive industry was focusing only on full electrification. Actually, we give another message by saying that we're going to be hybrid with sustainable fuel. We we believe that F1 can accelerate the path versus sustainability of another way of being sustainable through the automotive industry. And that's why I think we are successful.
2: That's the podcast for today and for the week. And it was a really big week. If you missed any of our episodes, check your feed. We have three special episodes of Becky Quick's sit-down interview with Warren Buffett and his Berkshire Hathaway successor, Greg Abel. That's three hours with the Oracle of Omaha for your weekend. Also in your feed this week, Andrew's sit down with Palantir CEO Alex Karp. Make sure you follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening so you never miss a thing. All that good stuff and more has happened on our TV broadcast, which is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, weekday mornings on CNBC at 6am Eastern. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend
5: we are clear. Thanks, guys.
0: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive...